0: Welcome to Pivot, a podcast for church leaders, co sponsored by Luther Seminary's Faith Lead and Lead. Welcome to Pivot, where today's episode is on creating conditions. My name is Terry Elton, and I'm from Luther Seminary.
1: My name is Scott Cormode. I'm from Fuller Seminary, and I have a new book coming out in, uh, in September. It's called the Innovative Church.
2: My name is Louise Johnson, and I am from LEED. And uh, today's episode is about creating conditions. Uh, I'm new to the Twin Cities, and so the other day I was uh going someplace new it was my goddaughter's birthday we were going to go uh meet up together and do a little shopping with her um, on her birthday and so i set um, the destination in my gps and it said you know i think 26 minutes to get there and as i was uh traveling down the highway i glanced over at my uh cell phone and my navigation to see the green line that goes from green to yellow and then to the dreaded red. And I thought, I, I do not want to sit in you know log jam traffic for half of the afternoon today. And so I got off of the highway, assuming that my GPS would reroute me, give me another way to get there. And usually that's how that goes. And so I kept making turns in the sort of same general direction and it, wouldn't, it just kept wanting to reroute me to the highway. And so I thought, well, maybe if I turn uh, away from the highway, maybe then it will pick up and give me a different route. That didn't work either. It didn't matter what I did. It just, it wanted to keep me on the path that I had been on and it just wasn't going to get me there in any other way. And so I needed a different way. I needed another way to get there, another way to navigate. And I remembered um, that I keep an old Atlas in my car tucked between the seats um, so that I can, for just exactly this kind of moment. So I pulled over and pulled out the map and then I could begin to see how the streets came together and how I could get there. But it It was really instructive for me as I've been thinking about the time that we're in and how it is that we're getting where we're going and recognizing that the old ways, those highways that are now often blocked to us or changed, that they're not helping us get where we're going. And in some ways, even where we're going seems unknown to us.
1: I do a lot of work through the Fuller Youth Institute with congregations and uh, coaching congregational leaders, the like. And a year ago, August 2019, uh, when I would be coaching leaders, if it was August, we would all be talking about the fall launch. There would be all sorts of things that people would be preparing for, for a fall launch of all these new and uh, exciting programs. Today, nobody's talking about a fall launch. Everybody's in survival mode. It wouldn't make any sense for us to be trying to create a fall launch. Uh, I was talking to a pastor recently at a pretty large church that had essentially they had declared a moratorium on any kind of new program or return to normal conversation until at least Christmas or the new year. They're not going to talk about what it's going to be like to be back in their sanctuary. They're not going to talk about returning to normal. just everything is a little bit week to week. Yet over and over again, the leaders that I've talked to keep wanting to go back to the path that we've been on. It's so disconcerting to feel like the path that I've been on, the path that I've known simply won't work. I was talking to a leader just yesterday who was saying, I'm very used to not rigorous planning, but this idea that I know that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning Where I will be. I will be in the sanctuary, and I know where my congregation will be. They will be there with me. And I can't count on any of that. And so I simply have to, well, in this case, what the pastor was trying to do is not just throw up their hands and say, uh, I don't know what to do next, but they were saying we have to live in some kind of a week to week, month to month kind of a plan. We can't figure out. What's next when we don't know what's around the corner?
0: So summer is my favorite season of the year, and mostly because in Minnesota, I like to be outside, and it's usually good weather, so I had great expectations of what the summer would like, like, okay, if there's a pandemic, at least I can get out and bike and then in on father's day uh, in June, I broke my hand, which took biking off the table, and yet. I still needed to be outside. And what I realized is that the best I could do in this disrupted mode was to get my body outside. There were other ways I could be outside while I lamented not biking. And so I got my running shoes on and I walked and whatever. And yes, last weekend, I finally got back on my bike six weeks later. But what I, I realized was that there were two things going on. One is I had this imagined picture of what summer would look like, even in the midst of a pandemic, I was so hopeful for this summer like I've had before. And it too was disrupted. And yet I also realized that I could create the conditions of being outside and enjoying a summer in Minnesota that I just had to reimagine. So when I think about ministry and leadership wow when we began this podcast or even a few weeks in i had imagined that by the end of our time doing these this season we would have a better picture of where we were going and i'll just tell you that there have been so many disruptions and uncertain circumstances that i had to let go with the imagined hope for future and I have begun to recalibrate, just like with my biking, how do we create the conditions for whatever God would have us be up to?
2: Carrie, I love that, the sense of creating the conditions for the imagined and hoped for a future. And boy, what great counsel for us in the midst of so many unknowns. And as I have been reflecting on that, I wonder, it occurs to me that this is maybe what the church has always been about. And I think we've been operating differently. Six months ago or even a year ago, right? We were. We all had um, strategic plans that outlined our own sense about our organization's uh, future and where we ought to be and what we ought to be doing and so on and so forth. And of course, even in our best planning, we could, none of us could ever have anticipated um, a global pandemic and then all of the other uh, ensuing struggles that have gone with that and are still unfolding. But I think sometimes as I look back over the story of scripture and the story of the church that Maybe in some ways, this has always been our work to create the conditions, the imagined and hoped for future, as opposed to trying to determine what future we think we want to get to. That's a practice that I think belongs mostly to the business world. And so for me, COVID has been the great disillusionment. It's taken away not only what we imagined were our future plans. I mean, I, you know, I'm part of a church now that um, was raising money for a building campaign. And you can imagine how strange that sounds to our ears right now. And then it makes me think back to my ordination vows. And one of the, one of the things that just sticks with me from those vows was, our, was counsel to us when we were getting ordained to give no occasion for false security or illusory hope give no occasion for false security or illusory hope. And so I think promising people a future that we cannot determine or imagine um, might fall under that vow of giving no occasion for false security or illusory hope. And instead, I love this notion that our work turns toward not toward driving toward a future, but toward creating the conditions for the imagined and hoped for a future of God.
1: So w- we talk about this creating the condition for an imagined or hoped for future. That plays right into what I would say is, is the biblical definition for Christian leadership. For me, it all spins out of one passage of Scripture, and that would be First Corinthians 3.6. The beginning of First Corinthians, as you probably know, uh, there's all these controversies going on, and Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, that Paul planted, Apollos watered it, but God gave the increase. And we can all agree that the most important actor of those three is God. But what is our work? Our work is planting and watering. We cultivate the soil. We we create the conditions for growth. I once had a student who was the president of a ball bearing factory, and he would put certain resources or raw materials into his machine. And at the end of the process, he got ball bearings milled to a very specific spec. And if it didn't work out exactly as predicted, he stopped the machine and fixed it until he could get a guaranteed result. We in the church cannot get a guaranteed result. What we do is we plant and we water and we turn our people over to God and God gives the increase. And what do we do? Well, this is exa- we do exactly what Jesus did. Jesus spent his time planting stories and inviting people to come and live into them. Nothing that we do is any more or less than what Jesus did. We plant, we water, we create the conditions for growth, and then we ask God to do what God has already been doing. So much of what we do in our Cultivating is simply find where God is already producing fruit, and we try to cultivate the soil and plant stories and turn our people over to it. We belong to the soil. We do not have a guaranteed result.
0: You know, I think part of what has been the hardest to get my head around is how has the soil changed or has it? And I think for some of us, that's a really comforting metaphor. We understand that. For other others, that's kind of odd. But farmers have to pay attention to the soil. And I think what a lot of what we've been talking about is, A, how do we find out what the soil state of the soil is and how, what are the bigger things that are going on around us? So we we began talking about listening to the longings and losses of people. That's one way to get a sense of what's going on. But we've also talked about the larger environment. We talked about the feeling like we're in permanent whitewater. And why? Because there are four crises happening all at the same time. Economic, medical, racial, political, all of those things are moving around us. So if we feel like this is taking a lot of our energy, it's true. I think part of the question for me is what does it mean to take seriously the current state of our soil? And, and that's part of for me, what does it mean then to create conditions for this future to arrive in light of those conditions?
1: You use this image of whitewater. And so much of whitewater is that you can't plan for the future. All you can do is ride the current and you don't know what's around the next corner. And so all you can do is be buffeted along. And so many pastors I know have been talking about how I just have to live in the moment and living in the moment's a good thing. I mean, we're, we're thrilled with that, but I had two different conversations this week with pastors where we discovered that living in the moment and planning for the future are inherently in our conde- intention with each other. Uh, because for some people, just living in the moment means I'm not going to worry about the future. But the problem is, is that whatever then the future holds surprises them and they feel smacked about and they don't really feel like they've prepared for it. So we need to find a way to live in the moment in a way that plans for the future. I put it this way when I talk to my students. I said, I say, preparation makes you agile. If you look at athletes, if you look at dancers, whatever it is, they spend their time practicing, not because they know exactly what the conditions of the game are going to be, but because they know that there are certain things that are going to need. And it turns out that there's a lot of research, uh, scholarly research, on how to do such a thing. There's a a famous article from the 1970s um, by a guy named Ari de Gauss. It's called Planning is Learning. And he talks about how the purpose of planning is not to make a plan, not some kind of thing you get locked into and then have to do. That would never work in our COVID world that's just being created. But instead, he says the purpose of planning is to learn what you need to know in order to be agile. And this, the example that he gives is that Uh, When he was in charge of uh, planning for a very, very large oil company, a Royal Dutch Shell in the uh, early uh, 1970s, he got them thinking about what would happen if the price of oil went way up, what would it go way down? And they kind of thought through that and they figured it out. And then the Arab oil embargo happened. And they had already thought through a whole bunch of things. And so they were about six months ahead of all the other oil companies, and they made an enormous amount of money. They didn't have a plan that they had to stick to, but they had done the research on the things that they were going to need to know in order to be agile. And so what are some of the things that we need to know in order to be agile? These are exactly the kinds of things that we have been talking about with this podcast. Listening. Teaching our people to lament, empathy, each of these kinds of things are the things that we're going to have to spend our days doing so that whatever it is that our future holds, we will be ready for it.
2: Scott, I like what you're saying about agility and the notion of planning, and it makes me think about a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away when I used to do um, some martial arts training. And the, the notion of um, at least the, the martial arts training that I did was about learning sequences and moves and preparing your body. It was about building muscle and muscle memory um, in a in series of movements so that whatever scenario you encountered, your body would just move in response to what you were encountering so that it took it kind of out of the conscious and put it into the subconscious so that your body would respond to whatever was needed in a particular scenario. And I just remember just going through those motions and movements over and over and over and over again and learning different sequences of them. And I think about that in terms of building spiritual muscle in these days, what does that look like? How do we we build spiritual and leadership muscle so that we're prepared, even though we don't know what's coming, but so that we're prepared for whatever it is that we're going to encounter. And so I think a lot about, uh, I've, I've picked up this practice of reading scripture daily, and I read the Moravian Daily text, write a little bit about them in the mornings. And of course, you know, this morning I'm, I'm slogging through the book of Joshua And it struck me when I looked at the text this morning that we're already on the 18th chapter, because I thought, how how come I can't think so much about what's in the book of Joshua? And we're already 18 chapters in, except that it's, it's, you know, just chapter and verse about locations and boundaries and um, lineages and tribes and so on and so forth. But what I recognize is that not while not every day of digging into scripture do I emerge feeling um, inspired and profound and having something that applies today, what I recognize is that the practice of being in scripture over time sinks these texts deeply into my consciousness. It begins to form me and shape me so that the things that are coming my direction in any given day, those texts are beginning to speak and to uh, move and to help me know how to respond to the world in ways that I might not otherwise respond. Yeah, I and that that takes me, uh it reminds me too of just, you know, that kind of moving out, not only moving out of text, but but even moving out of our identity. And how is it that we uh kind of root or reroot ourselves in in our identity? My colleague Nate Frombach used to talk about uh, being baptized into the grand story of God, and so the the notion was that if in the baptismal liturgy, as we do, we pray stories over the baptismal font, right? Let's kind of like gather around a campfire and telling telling the stories of the family. We pray these stories over the waters, and then when we're baptized, that our story also becomes part of this grand narrative of God. That our stories are, in fact, God's stories. And I think part of the key to that for me has been just believing that, believing that my story does belong as part of God's story, that God's claimed us and God has called us um, God's own beloved. And so that for me helps me just kind of move differently in the world. It's another kind of muscle memory that just helps me know who I am and how I might respond into a difficult situation. And it reminds me that all kinds of strange characters throughout scripture were called to do unusual things. If you think about somebody like Moses or Esther or Mary or Paul and what they brought to the table and the work that God called them to do, oftentimes they're woefully inadequate to the task. They're not the people you would have picked out to do the jobs that God calls on them to do. But the thing that makes them effective in their calling is their willingness just to step into it just to step into the call and let that calling and god's power come in and through us to do the work that's in front of us so that you know a big impossible work that stands in front of us suddenly becomes possible when we're called to it and when we step into that work and then maybe one last thing that comes to mind is I'm thinking about all of these pieces and I'm going back here, Scott, to um, thinking about your metaphor of the soil. And, you know, one of the things I get really frustrated about in our denomination is that we we pay attention a lot to activities we like to measure activity and we think if we just do the right activities that people will show up right so we're sometimes i i talk about us as a if you build it they will come kind of church we don't imagine that we have to pay attention to um, results or outcomes or anything so strange as that but it's just about getting something right uh, to begin with and then of course naturally people will be drawn to it, except that what I've noticed over time is that, is that that doesn't work. And so, I'm, I'm learning this practice over time of looking for fruit, where God is already moving and active in the world, and then learning to lean into that, to move into that, and to let that help me determine whether or not I spend a lot more time and energy on something if it's not bearing fruit. Even if I think it's a good thing, even if great people are involved, even if we've sunk uh, money and time into it, if it's not bearing fruit, it's time in my mind to let something go? And then what does it mean to look for where God is bearing fruit and where, you know, where there is motion and movement and a way forward and to step into that work that God is already doing in and through the Holy Spirit?
0: So to be honest, living in this time and making this my new home, this new permanent whitewater environment, is a pivot for me. I like to have practices like you said, Louise, and literally check them off and wonder uh, have I done that? Have I done my 10, 15 minute devotion in the morning? Have I done my prayer at night? And then say, okay, I've had my time with God. Now it's all on me. I can handle the rest. And this pivot here for me shifts me from a doing mentality to a being mentality from a, what are the urgent questions in front of me to tackle, to give my best intellect and wisdom to opening myself to others, to hearing what they have to say, to deeply seeing what's happening in the environment around me, which means being there just putting my body there in a different way. It means slowing myself down and really opening myself to let God's future for us, for me, emerge. And there's a trust here. There's a faith element here that says, God, it's been your story. It will continue to be your story. Can I lean into joining that story? And can I look for your activity and join in? Weave, weave the things that I'm doing. But that's slower. It changes my mode. And it has me focus on different things. That's where I think of when I think of those elements that you, Scott and Louise, have brought up. And, and I wonder, as a Christian leader in the larger church, If we are in a place now when the conditions are ripe for this pivot, for this leaning into God's future, has enough been disrupted that we get at some of the questions, not that are important and urgent, but are are way underneath? I wonder at what point we're going to quit asking about the building and get at how are we with God? How are we noticing and joining in with what God is already doing? And if that might be the opening that is, that is a possibility for us as we think about the future.
1: I'm very taken with the image, Louise, that you had of muscle movement and muscle mus- building muscle that we don't necessarily know what the future provides, but we do know that we're going to need these muscles. And so what I'm going to ask the two of you to do in a moment is, as we look at takeaways, what are the muscle and muscle movements that we're taking away from this? I will give a few that I think, and then I'll ask for you to think about some too. One of them is the idea that um, we are pivoting from program to practices. And this pivot from program to practices is the pivot to storytelling and to listening. This idea of practices has meant a lot to me during this pandemic. These are the muscles that I think that that I need to build up are these practices. These are the muscles that my congregation needs. These are the muscles that every leader is going to have to have in order to build a agile future. And I can think of at least five practices that I think that if we work on those every day, and if we work on building them into our congregation, to switch the metaphor, this is the planting and watering that we will do. The first of these practices is listening to my people. Like you said, Terry, if we're going to plant, we have to know what this, how the soil is changing. And the only way I know how to know how the soil is changing is spend an enormous amount of time li- listening to the experience of my people just listening to them tell stories about what their life looks like right now. The second one is cultivating empathy. Empathy is this sense of feeling with others. I need to have empathy as a leader as I listen to my people so that I am transformed by what I hear. And at the same time, I need to cultivate empathy in my people so that they listen to the world with uh, a sense of feeling with them, not pushing them away. The third practice is the practice of lament, because I know that no matter what happens, there is going to be pain in the future. I don't know what that pain is going to be, but I know that there is pain in the future. And the appropriate biblical response to pain is lament. We talked about how, what, 40% of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. If we can be planting those Psalms, if we can see those as the muscles that we need to build, if we can make lament a regular part of our communal life, then whenever people need it, they can just use it. They will be able to respond instinctively, uh, as Louise said, with lament. They don't need to be taught it. So the first is listening. Second is empathy. Third is lament. The fourth practice is Sabbath, which you've heard me say is I define as a healthy rhythm of labor and rest. And for me, rest is not just the absence of labor. It is restorative habits. It's finding things that take me to the place of uh, being restored. Oftentimes, these are things that are connecting to God. Other times, they are things that just give me uh, joy. You were talking, Terry, about how bike riding gives you joy. That's a way of a restorative practice. But we need to teach our people to have a healthy rhythm of labor and rest. And then the fifth practice is a continual back and forth between grief and gratitude. Oftentimes we are planting stories and the stories that we tell ourselves allow us to reorient the data that we're experiencing. And if we have a story that says we have to have uh, only pain and difficulty, we have no place for gratitude. And if we have a story of only gratitude, we have no place for grief. We need to recognize that we experience scarcity and pain and grief and difficulty. And we need to recognize that God continues to provide and that we have reasons to be grateful. And somehow I need to live in the tension, the the space that is created by both gratitude and grief. Uh, If I were planning worship services right now, I would be planning a worship service that every single week had moments of gratitude and moments of grief because I don't know what the future holds, but I know it will be true for my people that they will have both of those kinds of things. What do you all think about muscles or muscle movements that you're taking away from this conversation?
2: That's a great list, Scott. And I certainly would echo um, those that you've listed. You had asked us earlier to think about ones that we felt like we really needed to lean into. And for me, I think it's the practice of Sabbath. That's such a hard one for me to get a hold of. And I think about, it's just a different focus or emphasis on Sabbath. But I think about that as taking a day out of labor um, so that we remember where our provision comes from, right? That we we begin to understand that we are not the source of the roof over our heads or the, the food on our tables or the relationships around us, but instead they come to us as gifts. And so how do we acknowledge the gift? How do we acknowledge the giver? And how do we begin again to remember that and to trust that God is in fact um, at the helm of all of this crazy and chaos and to trust that, right? And and to let go of our own anxieties and worry about the world, but to trust um, in the one who provides, even if that provision these days looks more like manna than it does a 401k, so I just for my own self, I recognize that that's, that's a practice that I want to spend more time on because I think it will help me be not only faithful to who God has determined me to be as a beloved daughter, but I think it will help me be a better leader if I can model what that looks like and um, have the, the just the resources to be less anxious in the moments where there is cause for great fear and anxiety and then the second thing i would identify is how do we how do we let go of the immediate and the important so the things that are right in front of us all the time you know i i've been talking with a number of clergy and congregations. And everybody seems to be at this moment kind of frozen in time. There's so many um, tasks and things calling for their time and attention that are right in front of them that are, in a sense, um, competing for their time and energy and resources, which are limited. Um, but they are also pulling them away from what I call the impossible work. So what does it look like to lean into the possible work, which I think right now looks like, what does it mean to lean into the vision that God has given us of God's reign in scripture? What does it look like to lean into that? And instead of trying to figure out, you know, what are all of the, what are what are the clever ways that my congregation might be able to meet together over the next three months? What are the ways that we might in fact look around us and serve our neighbors who are in need? And so it's that sense of, of reordering our priorities, of letting go of important work and what it looks like immediate work to step into
0: the impossible
2: work that God is calling us to.
0: When I think about this question, Scott, it's a twofold for me. I have my church leader hat, my larger hat with regard to how I live in the church and lead in the church. And then I have me as a beloved child of God hat. I'm going to start with the church hat. And I think, first of all, I'm recognizing that we're not living in a blizzard and we're not living in a season. We are certainly in an ice age, that question we lifted up way long time ago and that the future I thought we were moving into is maybe not the future that is actually going to be on the other side. And so I'm trying to embrace a posture of not knowing and of being curious and of being open to diverse ideas and experiences and just not having to do anything with that, but receive it at this time. And that for those that know me, I'm good for a while. And then I want to close it up and now put it in four bullet points and And post it for a class or something, right? That's how I'm wired. And so just pushing myself to live in this not knowing kind of posture is kind of my takeaway as a leader. Personally, I'm a doer and to live as a a being, to live more fully and recognize this is hard work, and if this is an ice age, or if this is a shift in a way of how things are wired around us in the environment, is going to demand of me stuff all the time. And I need to be in touch with my being. I can do a lot of things. I have a high capacity, which is part of a downfall for me at times, that I can get lose track of my being. And so for me, relationally, what are the the life-giving practices of the relationships that I need to be connected with that are life-giving. Physically, what am I doing with my body, especially as I see winter come in Minnesota and I have to put my bike away? What are the ways in a pandemic or in whatever we have coming that I can be physically well? And then finally, and this is the hardest for me, some will laugh when they hear me say this, but emotionally checking in with myself. You talked uh, about gratitude and grief, for example, Scott living alongside each other. I can very easily say my gratitude and have it shadow the grief that is underneath that. And until I actually name that, that is also there. Or my anxiety and my optimism live alongside each other. Until I am able to put that out in at least on paper in a journal or said out loud to another friend or colleague, then I'm not going to deal with it and I'm going to live in an illusion. So those are the pieces for me of takeaway from this that I think I've already been working on, but have become clearer on why they're so important. Well, I thank you for this conversation on creating the conditions our next episode, Promising Innovation, will be our final episode of this season, and so we look forward to that and uh, tune in. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of our Pivot podcast. For more leadership resources from LEAD, you can go to waytolead.org, or from Faithlead go to faithlead.luthersem.edu.